Hi everyone, and welcome to the Las Musas podcast. My name is Hilda Eunice Bufos, and I'm the author of the middle grade novel, Ana Maria Reyes Does Not Live in a Castle, and the picture book, The Cot in the Living Room. Today, I'm joined by Gloria Amesqua, who is the author of Child of the Flower Song People, Luz Jimenez, Daughter of the Nahua, which releases on August 17th of this year. Um, Gloria, do you want to start off by introducing yourself and telling us a little bit about your book? Hi, everyone. I'm glad to be here. Uh, my picture book biography is about model and storyteller Luz Jimenez, who keeps her native pride and resilience under the dominant Mexican culture. Luz is a Nahua embodying the native people, and she was a model for 20th century artists such as Diego Rivera and many others who were trying to show the true face of Mexico. She also told cultural stories in Nahuatl that researchers captured helping keep the native language alive. She longed to be a teacher as a child and though stymied by the Mexican revolution, she became a teacher through her representation of her cultural identity and through language. She was known as the spirit of Mexico a living link between the Aztecs and the rest of the world. Through her deep pride in her roots and her unshakable spirit, the world came to recognize the beauty and the strength of her people. The amazing Duncan Tonatillo is the illustrator and uh, it comes out August 17th, as Hilda said, uh, from Abrams Books. Thank you. Yeah, it's such a beautiful book. I'm so excited that the world is going to get to see it. Can you tell us what inspired you to write about Luz Jimenez? Yes, I feel like Luz Jimenez kind of found me. I happened upon a pamphlet about her and realized I had never thought about the models in paintings and their lives and what was behind that. And I was kind of astounded that I'd never thought about that. And as I read about her, I was amazed about her life and I knew I had to write about her. Uh, she was an intelligent and curious little girl who wanted to become a teacher. And though she had many struggles throughout her life, she, she really came to um, represent the, the Nawa people, the native people, uh, and became a teacher after all in that way. I connected with Luce on a very personal level. Um, when the Mexican government uh, made school mandatory, the indigenous students were shamed about their uh, languages. They were punished if they were spoke Nahua, uh, their clothing. Uh, the effect was really kind of erasure of the culture of the, the indigenous people. And that same kind of shaming, I mean, in a different way, but that shaming of Spanish in the United States when I was growing up and the punishment for speaking Spanish in school affected how I grew up. Oh, were you punished in school for speaking Spanish? No, I was affected in a very different way than you might expect. I didn't uh, speak Spanish at home. Uh, my parents uh, spoke it when my older brother was born and he spoke it with them and he's seven years older than I am and there's no one in between. So he had trouble when he went to school. So they decided to only speak English to me and my younger brother. Uh, 
And I would occasionally overhear them talking in Spanish. Sometimes I call myself a native listener, but not a native speaker. And this was so even though that my dad was from Mexico, from Michoacan, um, and I felt shame in not being able to speak Spanish with my Spanish speaking school friends. And um, even as an adult, when uh, someone would speak to me in Spanish and expect a friendly Spanish reply, I, I'd have to answer them in English. And I really felt embarrassed, um, even though, even if it was just a greeting, I, I, I couldn't just come up with it very quickly. And so I did make an effort, you know, learning in school and in college and um, as even further as an adult and getting over my fear of not speaking fluently. I can now speak with my dad's cousin in California and other family members in Mexico. I don't have the vocabulary I wish I should I had. I think it's more common now that Latinx kids grow up without their familiar language. I know that my nieces and nephews don't speak it. My son uh, really doesn't either. He didn't grow up with it. It's just what he learned in school. My granddaughters have had it in school, but they're, they won't speak it either. My, even though my daughter-in-law is fluent in both English and Spanish. So um, I, not only the language, but also I didn't get the culture. Uh, it just didn't exist. I, maybe because my mom had been here for generations and my dad um, just didn't bring any of it with them. I didn't have grandparents around um, to learn any stories or traditions from. So I've always wondered um, where I fit. I didn't feel like I fit in anywhere. And um, I've kind of gotten beyond that now uh, because it, I am who I am and I'm still Latinx. And, and so, yeah. you know, but yeah, I, 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 I think a lot of, it. yeah, I think a lot of people feel that way. And, you know, I think it's one of the things that we all notice I guess about Latinx people is that, you know, we're all very different. You know, we have yeah. not only do we hail, do our ancestors hail from a lot of different countries, but also even our own experiences are very different. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, my sisters and I all did grow up speaking Spanish because my mom um, didn't speak English, but, and we also lived in a neighborhood where a lot of people spoke Spanish, but none of our children speak Spanish very well. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and sometimes, you know, you have older relatives that kind of criticize you for that and say, oh, you know, you didn't teach your kids how to speak Spanish. And, yeah. you know, it's it's hard, <laughs> you know, it's, yeah. it's hard to to be everything and do everything. Right. And, um, you know, we just but we're still we're still just as whatever you know I'm still yeah. you know, like you're you're still you know you, you still have your culture and your ancestry and you know yeah well that that's what I loved about Luce she had learned her culture and her language and she spoke Spanish fluently and she even knew some French because she took care of uh, Jean Charlot's children and oh. she learned to sing them little songs in French and so on because he was part Mexican and part French but uh you know I don't I think the Spanish and the novel were the, her two main languages and uh, I mean I know that 
where you look, grow. I grew up in the country, so I had no friends that spoke Spanish around me. Uh, my cousins are more fluent than I am, although basically we all speak in English when we were together, but they can more easily speak Spanish, like with my aunt. And I try, I have one aunt left and on my mother's side. And uh, she, as she's gotten older, she's speaking more Spanish. But I think because my mom and her family had been in the, in Texas for so long, they spoke Spanish at home, but they knew English, you know? So, right. yeah, it, it's kind of, as you said, it is an ongoing kind of thing and um we're still latinx regardless so yeah 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 Yeah. and you know it's interesting that you said that about luz speaking you know french as well she seemed like a a very very impressive young woman and she was very resilient as well i know that you know in your book you say that she wanted to be a teacher since she was 13 but despite many setbacks, um, she, she was still able to do it, even though she was turned away several times. And she not only taught at college, but she also taught the world about her culture. Um, can you talk about your author's journey and how resilient you had to be in order to achieve your dreams? I, I think, well, I've always written. I've written poetry since I was a kid. And I guess I dreamed about publishing Uh, so that my work would be out there. And I did have poetry published in journals and in actually in a textbook. But it wasn't until my granddaughters were young that I tried writing a picture book for them. And uh, it was too complex an idea and too simple. The uh, uh, metaphor, I guess, that I was trying to use. And it, it was just it, it wasn't good. And I realized it wasn't, even though they loved it because it was about them. I used photos about them and had it printed for them. But uh, it's taken a long time to get the story printed. I actually started taking a course in January of 2014 from the Rotting Barn. And then I, I wrote several different, some fiction, and I wrote this biography. I knew I had to write about her because I still had that pamphlet and I immediately knew who I wanted to write about. And then it just sat for a couple of years. And then I, when I took another course, I took some other courses, but then I took a course that was specifically on picture book nonfiction. And that's where I got going and um, got it to where it was I went ahead and submitted it to Lee and Lowe's books, uh, I mean, uh, awards, uh, and it won an honor award for uh, new voices. And um, so that helped me get an agent, but it took a long time to get an agent and to then, uh, it wasn't too long to be accepted for publication after I got an agent, but then I have Duncan Thonatheo as the illustrator and he, was working on his own book. So waited another period of time for him to be able to finish that. But I'm so glad because he's just wonderful. And I love what he did with the book. So yeah, I mean, my, my granddaughters are now 12 and 14. They still love the book, but they've been waiting a long time. <laughs> so it does take resilience and perseverance. Well, I'm glad you didn't give up because no, it really is a beautiful book. Yeah. Um, do you want to tell us a little bit about your book 
uh, The Cot in the Living Room. It's now available and uh, it's a beautiful book. So would you tell us something about it, Hilda? Oh, thank you so much. Um, yes, it was, it was published on June 1st and it's my first picture book. And um, here's the description of it. It, it is fiction. Um, night after night, a young girl watches her mommy set up a cot in the living room for children from their Washington Heights neighborhood whose families work the overnight shift around New York City. She resents that they get the entire living room with a view of the George Washington Bridge, while all she gets is a tiny bedroom with a view of her snoring sister. Until one night, no one comes and it's finally her chance. But as it turns out, sleeping on the cot in the living room isn't all she thought it would be. This book is both a celebration of how a Dominican American community takes care of one another and an honest exploration of the transformative power of empathy. Well, what inspired you to write this book? What made you come up with this idea? Uh, this was based on my own childhood experiences. When I was a child, I had a stay-at-home mom who babysat a lot of neighborhood kids. Mostly the children came during the day, but a few had to stay overnight because their parents worked at night. Um, when I was very young, I resented them encroaching on my family space and time together. But as I got a little older, I realized just how lucky I was and how difficult it must be for these children to spend the night alone in a stranger's home. I, I, I really saw that uh, and also the way in which um, she actually came to realize that, you know, she was very lucky. Um, I love the fact that, you know, the, the family was taking in kids who really needed a place to stay. And so it's just beautiful to see that community, um, you know, supporting each other. Um, your book made me think about how lucky I was to have my own bedroom and uh, how I never thought about uh, my early years when uh, my older brother slept on the living room couch and my younger brother slept in my parents' um, bedroom. Uh, so, it, so you were lucky really, you had your own room. I had my own room. I know I didn't realize how lucky it was. And then later they added more rooms to the house. So that that was good. But yeah, your main character got to, to uh, see that difference when she was in, on the, she got that her chance to be in the cot in the living room. And uh, she probably also felt left out about the attention that, that the other kids, I, I saw that in, the, in, in your book, that the parents are giving the other kids, you know, attention that, that possibly she wanted. Was yeah. it difficult to develop that story arc and the emotional change in the little girl? Um, no. From the time I first envisioned the story, I knew that I wanted to follow the main character's emotions from her initial jealousy to her later empathy. But the one thing I did struggle a little bit with was how to show her arc while also giving agency to the children who slept on the cot. And I wanted 
to, and, you know, it's a little, as you know, I'm sure we're always worrying about keeping our word counts low in a picture book. And so that was always on the back of my mind as I wrote the story. And as I tried to, there were three different children and I wanted mm. to tell a little bit about each of them. And I wanted each of them to have some agency. Mm. And, um, I, you know, so I, I have to say, though, that tinkering with the story and trying to come up with just the right words to put in the right places was a lot of fun. So I, I did enjoy writing it, but but that was a, a little bit of a struggle was coming up with with that. Yeah, I can imagine that that would be because um, fictional picture books really do have a very limited word count. I mean, nonfiction picture books do also, but not as not as, uh, as short as uh, the fictional ones. So you did a great job on that. And I did feel uh, each character was developed. So did a great job with that, Hilda. Thank you. Uh, I love the color range of the characters that represent so many ethnicities in the book. And how did you feel when you saw Gabby de la Sandro's illustrations? Oh, I thought they were just so beautiful. I really liked it. I, when I, when I first, um, when, when I first signed the contract and I was talking to my editor about the story and about what I envisioned the characters looking like, I didn't really say, I didn't tell her what they should all look like. Mm -hmm. But one thing that I requested is that I said, I want, I want the illustrations to show that there is a lot of racial diversity in the community in Washington Heights. And mm -hmm. that, you know, even though everybody might be Dominican or from some other uh, Latin American countries that they're not they're they don't all look the same I want it there to be a broad color palette and so you know she did that and she did it really well um, and you know just one of the one of my concerns with the story was that it all takes place in one room mm -hmm. and I did hear from you know other picture book people that one thing as an author that you want to do is give your illustrator a lot to work with and you want to take your characters to a lot of different places so that the illustrations can be very varied and I didn't do that I just set the whole story in one room and she did such a beautiful job using the character's imagination and mm -hmm. using all these colors and it was really quite emotional when I first saw it because it really felt like the story was really coming alive and like she added a lot to the story mm -hmm. with the illustrations. Uh, so it was, and I, I never met her. I met her after the book came out um, virtually. I still haven't met her in person. And yeah, it was just, it was such a great collaboration. Oh, that's just yeah. great. I, it was one of the things that I noticed. I uh, noticed that right away. And I thought, oh, that's wonderful. Yeah. And uh, probably, uh, you grew up in Washington Heights, right? I did. I yeah. Did. So yeah. this is kind of based on what you grew up with. And um, yeah, and yeah, I'm glad that you were able to say that uh, to the editor and so on. So yeah. that, and probably she would have done it anyway, but that way you spoke up and you got what you wanted and uh, yeah she does a wonderful and, job you know, and I it. gave her some examples I said we had we had Afro Latinx mm. kids we had kids that you know have, were more indigenous descent we had kids mm. who were 
you know, very, very fair skinned, mm-hmm. blonde hair, you know, just, I just had, I just said, you know, just, and, and, you know, she used all three, I think. Yeah. So yeah. It, yeah. it was really, she did a really great job. And, um, you know, I did, I do think that what, one of the, it's, I've heard people who are author illustrators say, oh, it must be so difficult to just be the author and not also have control over the illustrations. And it is, Initially, it was something that was a little bit scary to think mm-hmm. that I'm going to hand over my baby to some other person <laughs> to make the pictures. But then when I saw how well she did it, I was really happy. And I assume that you felt the same way when you saw your illustrations. How did you feel when you saw Duncan? Oh, my gosh. Well, I was familiar with his previous work. And uh, but still, I didn't know what would look like. Um, you know, with the book, the text that I've given him. And um, I still haven't met him in person or virtually. Uh, it, well, let me backtrack because I did meet him when he wrote at the Texas Book Festival. He didn't know who I was because I wasn't writing anything at the time. Well, maybe I was, but it wasn't anywhere. But I met him uh, when he had a separate is never equal. And I love that book so much. And um I went up to him as he was exiting the, one of the tents and I just spoke to him because I wanted to tell him how much I loved his book, but I'm sure he doesn't remember me. And um, I was thrilled to know that he was a possibility. My um, editor also handles his books because mainly he just illustrates his own books. So I'm very honored that he illustrated um, my book and agreed to do it. And when I saw the black and white, I was, I was just really happy with what he did. But when I saw the color version, I really almost cried. It was just so gorgeous. And I love the way that I, I knew it would be that mystic style uh, that kind of harks back to the indigenous people of long ago and what they did with their art when they did just profiles. But um, so many things, the outline of the uh, gods and goddesses in the mountains, the, I, I love the colors, the flower theme throughout. He had all these different flowers and it just fits so well with the, really the symbol I was using uh, uh, throughout and I love that he did a, a a head of from profile um that had Nawa all the inside of it uh, and it's also on the hardcover the hardcover uh is different than the the jacket of the book so I love that and um he also used kind of a style for the telling of the stories and the breath really that kind of goes it's just throughout with these they're not bubbles they're not speech bubbles but they're different ways that he indicated stories were being told because that was so important uh, when Luce listened to the stories and then when she was telling them and uh, it, I just you know it was perfect for the story yes His I, ag- was, I agree yes it was, it was perfect it all fit very well. And I'm not, you know, you mentioned before that you started off writing poetry and mm-hmm. that doesn't surprise me at all because 
the the words of your story are very lyrical and very poetic and his illustrations kind of match that so it it really does work very very nicely yeah yeah no no instructions whatsoever to Decantonatio I mean you know he he knows what he's doing and what uh, I, I think the editor when he wanted to uh, publish my book he was he he did tell me that he he had shown it to Duncan and that Duncan was interested. And I think that that's a big part of why uh, he chose my book to publish. It's because yeah, he saw great. that. Yeah. yeah. So I'm, I'm just thrilled. Yeah. Um, what are you working on and what are your future writing plans? I, I'm working on a couple of, um, middle grade ideas that I have. I had actually last November during NaNoWriMo, I had, I started, I did like maybe one third of a draft of a middle, a new middle grade book. Um, I don't want to say too much about it because I don't want to yeah. jinx it. Yeah, <laughs> but, I know. but I am, it's just been, it's been really hard this year for some reason to write. It's been harder being home all the time um, than it was before when I was going into work and then coming home and writing I feel like because I'm staring at a computer all day long mm. that yeah I then don't want to stare at it again in the evening so it's been a little bit slower and also I have my second middle grade novel comes out in October so I've been working you know before this I was working on revisions to that and now that's all ready and set to go um so yeah and I, and I have I have a few picture book ideas as well, but I, I don't have anything finalized that I'm sending out to anyone just yeah. yet. What about well, you? What are you working on? Well, let me ask this question though, but which do you think is harder, the middle grade? You have two middle grades and uh, it's picture book and some others you're working on. Which do you find harder, picture books or the middle grade? I don't know that I would say one is necessarily harder than the other. I would say that they are very different and that you have to get in a different frame of mind. Um, you know, on the one hand, obviously writing 60,000 words is going to take a lot more time than writing 600 words. But as you know, I'm sure writing a picture book isn't as simple as just sitting down and writing 600 words. You know, there's a lot of thought involved and a lot of editing involved. So I wouldn't really say that one is necessarily harder or easier than the other. I would just say that they're very different and that for me, at least it's, it's a little bit, I have to sort of get totally into one and then totally into the other one. And it's, it's a little bit harder to toggle back and forth. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I can see that would be, yeah. Yeah. And what about you? Are you working on anything now? Well, I'm actually, I am working on another picture book biography. I've uh, revised it um, and my agent has it and it's going to be resubmitted to my editor. So I have to do some heavy revisions and um, hopefully, uh, you know, go forward. Um, also have a, a picture book that's with the editor and waiting to see what happens with that. 
And I have several other fictional picture books that are waiting in the wings. Uh, I want to explore some other genres, uh, possibly a novel in verse, a, a middle grade, or um, uh, even a graphic novel I've been thinking about. But I don't have anything written on those. I, I, I'm finding it hard to write something new in the middle of promoting uh, this yeah. debut book and having to learn all the ins and outs of doing that. So, yeah, just basically doing revising. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, that is, that is interesting. Is there anything, or you were just talking about, you know, the, um, having, promoting this book. Um, is there anything you wish you had known about the writing and publishing process before you started all of this? I wish I'd known how long it was going to take it. I mean, I don't, it's really been almost eight years since I first wrote my, that first draft. Wow. Um, but it did just, you know, it was just in a file for a couple of years and then it, it just took time to, um, revise it it was in prose and then I worked on trying to write it in verse but instead of really being verse I guess it's just more lyrical mm -hmm. um and I um also part of it was just learning all the different things in the well it's a long process like I said I took lots of courses that helped me and being in different groups like 12 by 12 and some of the uh, writing barn books like write some support and encourage to create those have been very supportive groups to me and I, I think I wouldn't be here without those I wouldn't have done that another thing is that you have to be okay with rejection it's hard um, but it's going to happen yeah. and I wish I'd known all the things that I really have had to learn very quickly uh, to publicize my book and the technology I need, the social media and, you know, how publishers, publicity teams works, uh, uh, websites, all of that. It's just been like, whoa, <laughs> we should know more about this and done it sooner. And uh, also there's just some, so many things to be uh, thinking about presentations and, um, school visits and conferences and promoting on social media and, you know, taxes, <laughs> so much. And uh, I'm learning it, but yeah. Uh, well, what about you? What advice would you give uh, pre-published authors? I guess I would say, um, well, one thing that I would say and I know you, you mentioned that about social media, you know, that's one thing I didn't really know how important having a social media presence is, but I think it is, and I'm still learning. You know, I just, I started to use Twitter when I joined Las Musas right after my first book was released. I'm still trying to get the hang of Instagram. And so I just feel like I'm going to, I need to like take, I don't know, a social media course or something. Um, so I guess I would tell pre-published authors, you know, kind of learn about social media that might be a good idea eventually um, so maybe slowly but surely learn about that and then also I would say write what's in your heart and don't worry about whether or not it will be marketable 
um, and keep working on your craft so that you can tell that story that's in your heart in the best way possible and therefore reach the, reach the hearts of your readers. Um, and then also I would say you have to learn to be patient because as you know, there's nothing quick about this industry. Nothing. <laughs> I don't know if you, do you have any additional um, pieces of advice? Well, Especially but, for those trying to write nonfiction. Well, I would imagine that's different. It, it is different in that uh, it requires a lot of research. And um, I was lucky to be able to um, connect with a professor at the University of Texas. Uh, I found her online, but uh, she introduced me to Lucy's grandson. And that was amazing to be able to be in touch with him. And he's been very, very helpful and supportive. I That's think, really cool. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is, and um, I also just think critique groups are really important. I think everybody knows that, but I also had an accountability partner, and that's important. We would keep up with okay what our goals are, and we started out doing weekly, but now we're just kind of doing when we can, what our goals were, right. and what we accomplished. Um, yeah, and. And basically learn everything you can as much as possible. One of the things that I wish I'd known as a uh, nonfiction writer is to just keep careful track of everything that you research. I mean, I did, but I'd have to go back and then try to find things that it, so yeah, that that is the most important part for that's different. You, you keeping track of where, what page, where it is, you know, that quote, everything um, uh, is is that that's really important. You're hearing my cat purring. I, he's on my shoulder. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, that's cute. <laughs> and uh, you know, also, also that you will have help. You know, you're your agent will help you. Your, if you have an agent, your, your editor will help you and the publicity team will help you. The main thing is really what you said. If you really want to connect with readers with something that you care about that's in your heart, then don't give up. No matter, you know, whether other people's journey is happening faster than yours or, you know, more quickly uh, as in their process, yours is going to be your own. So just be persistent and believe in yourself that's great advice if you'd like to learn more about Las Musas or our books uh, please visit our website at lasmusasbooks.com or find us on social media at Las Musas Books and be sure to check out our bookshop page where each purchase of one of our books goes towards supporting independent bookstores if you enjoyed this episode, please like, review, or subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast. You can also sign up for Las Musas newsletter to have a podcast updates, as well as other Musa news, such as release dates, teasers, spotlights, and more delivered straight to your inbox. I'm so happy to have shared this time with you, Hilda, and I hope that you have great success in your book. Um, thanks for listening, everyone. Okay, thank you.